Welcome to the next installment of the SUAS News Podcast Series, where we interview newsmakers and discuss the news and applications relevant to the global unmanned technologies community. I'm your program host, Patrick Egan, and as we always do, let's say hello and welcome to our co-host, Mr. Gene Robinson. Mr. Egan, how are you today? I am enjoying this absolutely beautiful spring Texas day. Loving it. (laughs) I got the same deal going here in California. It's going to be shirt sleeve oh, yeah, weather. Well, you know, I mean, it, it, uh, why do you else do you think I'd live here for the politics? Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> the high cost of living. High, okay, and the real estate. That's it. Exactly. I don't want to get down that, go too far down that road. But uh, so, you know, I know you always stay busy. Um, anything catch your uh, attention in the news this week? You know, I saw that Reno could soon be having the drone-delivered burrito coming up. Well, that's good, because I like a high-mileage burrito just as much as the next guy. You know, there, there's all sorts of things coming out of the IPP, as um, as promised. And uh, I, I did notice, too, that uh, the uh, the... The AUBSI FAA conference in Baltimore, Maryland, is going to come off in June. I don't know if you saw that, but, uh, you know, it was uh, delayed because of the government shutdown in February. Yeah, I'm not happy about that. I think the $769 gate fee is excessive, and especially to have access to um, people, your taxes, who, you know, your taxes pay their salary. I think they could do it for a hundred bucks a head. That's what I do the expo for. Um, and then you could educate the unwashed masses, you know. So I don't, I don't like that. Well, I've been uh, kind of beating the drum on that one. Yeah, I, I kind of thought that myself, and I looked at uh, last year's agenda, and it's uh, they don't have the new agenda up yet, which I find odd since they delayed it from February, but. I would have to agree that, uh, you know, we ought to be able to walk in and, and, and have access to these folks that are moderating these panels. Uh, no problem. But, uh, yeah, the getting there and, and uh, spending the, the, the three days and the, the narrow to just walk in the door seems to be a little inflated. But, I mean, you know, look who their partners are in, in putting it on. They've got to cover those salaries, and, you know, that they got to make it their profit out of the deal. So, Yeah, well, <clears throat> NASA does it for free. You know, they could do it for free. They've got the money. UASIO's definitely got the money. Um, you know, to me, it just, uh, if your goal is educating the masses, then you should ha- have it at a venue and a price point where the masses could come. And uh, But, you know, we don't want to get too far down that road either, you know. No, uh, <laughs> we, we just, we, we just blew the heck out of uh, our our drone advisory committee application. Just, there you go. Oh yeah, well you know that's you got to have. Uh, I'm I'm gonna you know I've got an application going too, but I don't have a lobbyist, so I don't think I'm gonna make the cut on that one. And that's okay too. You know I'd, I'd much rather see you know somebody from a uh, Chinese toy company heading it up. But anyway, whatever oh. the case. A lobbyist is required. I didn't. I didn't read that in the fine print. Well, it's hard to get on there on your own merit, you know. 
I mean, I don't care how much experience you've got, even if you've got almost 20 years under your belt, but uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. There's uh, a lot of people signed up for that. It ought to be interesting to see who gets picked. I think they were saying in April, so that should be coming up soon. Um, you know, on the other, uh, gearing up for the SUSB Expo in, in uh, San Francisco, April 24th and 25th, ought to be another excellent program. Um with with some good speakers and how to uh, with basically learning how to earn, but that ought to be good. There's other uh, stuff that uh, is going on the the uh, the 737 Max grounding. That's kind of an interesting one. Yeah, indeed. I think it's kind of interesting how uh, you know something something's changing you know uh, the FAA used to be the gold standard and uh now you've got uh, other countries making decisions on their own is this uh you know a harbinger of things to come even with uh airspace integration for drones what do you think you know i think there's a real good possibility that's going to happen i i read some interesting stuff about how boeing even said that uh you know the max should be pulled back um but you notice that uh, UK took the, the first stand and, and grounded them, and I think some of the Euro did as well. Uh, and then finally, the uh, the FAA came along and, and made some comment on it. But uh, I mean, that's kind of the way, don't you think? It's become that uh, you know, these guys are the bureaucracy is, has gotten very deep and extensive to to have to cut through to get through to anything to get done. Well, you know, the uh, the last administrator, you know, I, I uh, even wrote a letter to the president saying, you know, I didn't think he was uh, qualified because um, he just wasn't an aviator. You know, he uh, did support staff, came up with a nice bus schedule for the Olympics. Um, you know, that doesn't sound like passion for aviation to me. Um, I think that there's a lot of people at the FAA that are wondering, you know, what's going on. A lot of the uh, old timers are old guard of left, and uh, you have a lot of younger people, new people. Um, and I, I, I don't know if that, let's say, the legacy remains. I, th- I think things are changing there, and uh, I, I'm gonna, ha- I'm gonna assume that I'm not the only one that can see the writing on the wall that things are changing. Around the world, you have African countries making uh, making the move first. You have uh, even uh, African countries talking about getting space based ADSB. You know things like that. So things are changing. Um, you know, I, maybe we'll be seeing more of that. You know, I, I don't know in the future, but uh, uh, definitely, I, I think uh, people are seeing something else. Anyway, yeah, it seems to be an awkward position. It, it is a little awkward, but you know we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Uh, even even the well, I don't want to get too far down the rabbit hole on that one, but <laughs> we'll see what happens. We definitely keep our eyes on that one. But uh, you know today's um, podcast is uh, LTA all the way, and we are going to talk about um, going to talk about lighter than air and unmanned airships and. And and we're going to ha- have a little uh, time in the Wayback Machine, and I know you know these guys, and I know these guys, and now we're we're all coming up on just around 20 years of experience in this uh, unmanned aircraft systems arena. 
Um, so without further ado, we'll bring on our guests, Tony White and Jason White. Hello, guys. Good day. Good afternoon. Morning. All right. Yes, it's still uh, morning here in sunny California. So, you know, let's start out uh, with, uh, we've got Tony White, Jason White, the White brothers here. Uh, you guys have been around for a long time. Everybody on this call has been around for uh, a long time in the unmanned aircraft systems arena. But, uh, Tony, prob- could you uh, give us a, a brief bio and how you came to work with, let's say, UAS? Uh, sure. Yeah, I've been doing it 25-plus. You know, everybody's like, well, you're only 40. How's that? And I was doing it back in uh, high school and junior high, flying for my father, doing drones for old companies like LTV and, you know, doing all the early RC stuff before all the autopilot stuff. Did my stint in the military, did four years in the Army. Supposed to be a rally mechanic, but ended up taking over a target drone program in uh, Colorado Springs for the first and the third air defense artillery. Got done with that, decided, hey, I want to be a commercial pilot. Jumped into that, got my private, took my commercial, got all that, and as usual, ran out of money. And uh, just kind of wandered around for a little bit after that. And then we, uh, you know, kind of fell into the little blimp business. And up at the hobby shop one day, some guys decided they didn't want to fly the blimp for the Stars and Mavs anymore and kind of handed it over to us. And we ran with that. We started with the indoor blimps and, uh, you know, developed into outdoor blimps, and it just kept growing. And one fateful day, I finally got some investors interested in doing uh, developing our, uh, you know, our our product line. We sold 10 uh, 35-foot outdoor blimps, trailers. This is all early uh, 2000s. Um, well, as far as we know, we're the only ones out there. We were able to get our FAA. We were able to work with the FAA, get a – First thing we wanted to find out is if we were legal, and then we got our uh, official uh, blessing from the FAA under uh, uh, the old 9157, and we weren't happy with that, so we worked more with that and developed uh, with the regional FAA offices. We developed our own kind of uh, system. We got it blessed by the FAA and just moved on with that and uh, went on and met a guy named Bob Michelson, did all the uh, does all the aerials for the PTA, for the professional call. Monday Night Football, all that stuff. He's the guru god of uh, aerials and broadcasting. And uh, got with him and he said, if you can lift my camera, we'll keep you busy. And luckily I had just landed the investors and we uh, started doing the big, big shit. 60, 75 foot, carry 150 to 250 pounds payload and uh, really took off. We really did well. We uh, we demoed with the, uh, we demoed uh, uh, ESPN we went all out right. to uh, do some other You're, stuff. Uh, so, yeah, just going on. It's a long story, but but to wrap it up, you know, the FAA we got uh, our cease and desist in 2007, and now we're just kind of we're hanging out still in the UAS space. All right. Well, you you, you you hit us with a lot there. You jumped forward, but uh, we'll we'll unpack some of that in a minute. Jason, could you uh, please give us a uh, brief bio of how you got into the uh, UAS space? Uh, gladly, and uh, and like Tony said, thanks for having us on. Um, so mine's the uh, same thing. I grew up in RC my entire life. Uh, my father was a big pioneer in uh, in RC uh, in the 50s and 60s. And did a lot of innovation. Came up with the first proportional radios. So really, it's just something that I was born into, and uh, just assumed 
what, doesn't everybody do this stuff? So, um, so yeah, I went to, went to college, did my, uh, did my headbanging music stuff, and uh, floundered around for a bit, finally graduated with a degree in entrepreneurial and strategic management, and I said, you know what? I've now qualified to hire myself to start a business. So that's how we started back in 2000. Uh, we started with our first company, Galaxy RPB, and said, you know what? Let's just do... We, let's just do anything we can with unmanned systems. Back then, they were called remote-piloted vehicles. Um, so we just said, you know what? Let's just do it. Let's uh, do, you know. So we're doing a, a cutting-edge startup of uh, unmanned systems back in 2000. And, you know, there wasn't a lot of stuff to grab off the shelves and just plug in like uh, like we've got a plethora of today of, uh, of options raining down upon us. So we, had, uh, we were in that unique position of, Having to having to kind of forge ahead on our own. Tony covered a lot, blazed a lot with uh, what we did, so I'm not going to go into that. But uh, that's kind of how we got into UAS and uh, and how we got into that's how we got into UAS. But then how we got into LTA uh, is just as intriguing. Um, I mean, he kind of simplified by saying uh, we we fell into it uh, with the indoor arena blimps. But really, you know, we were we were doing operations. Uh, on golf courses and uh, in doing building surveys, you know, with wing-mounted cameras on uh, on sport aircraft that we were converting to RPV platforms, and um, you know, it's one of those things where you just ask yourself, you know, this is my business. I'm I've got I'm taking on all the risk, and and you don't see a lot of UAVs flying around. We're kind of the first, so we want to do it smart and we want to do it safe. So we ask ourselves, what's the safest way to carry some of these and at the time, you know, we weren't dealing with lightweight stuff. Stuff was heavy, and we wanted to use industry-grade equipment. So we're like, how do we carry this industry-grade equipment as safely as possible? So that's where we said LTA makes lighter than air makes the most sense, you know, and then we started looking at that. And that's and then, you know, the happy coincidences of uh, being able to do indoor uh, airship jobs for sports organizations such as the Dallas Stars and the Dallas Mavericks and that really gave us a chance to see what was out there uh, in that commercial space. And, uh, and really from there, that's where we just dug into it with both hands and said, let's, let's just do this. And we started doing our own systems, and we started taking them outside, and then, uh, and then the rest is history. Well, there's a lot of history in there. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I first met you guys, uh, and it was before this small UAS arc in, in 2007. And uh, you guys had already been operating. And I know, you know, again, a lot of people, oh, you know, the drones is new. It's new. And, and you know, it just became legal, and that's not really the case. And uh, you guys had, uh, I know Tony went to the FAA and uh, asked, hey, you know, how do we operate? How do, how, do we, how do we operate in the NAS? We want uh, the procedure. And, and this came up during the arc. People were like, well, you know, you shouldn't have got into an illegal business. You know, and I was like, uh, what are you talking about? Because it was a legal business. And, you know, now we're grappling with remote ID, flying over people, flying beyond visual sight. Tony, give us a brief synopsis of what the air traffic organization said in uh, Washington, D.C. when you, you asked uh, on procedures for operating in the NAS. And this is, let's we recall, this was in Dallas, Fort Worth, right? Class Bravo yeah. airspace. 
Last Bravo. We were flying downtown Dallas, and and people don't even know that there was a UAS, uh, well, drone office or UAV office back in, back then. I mean, when I went to D.C., there was a guy that flew our – there was five guys, um, and one guy was an RC uh, helicopter guy, and uh, so we did the run-through. We told them everything we wanted to do, and um, they were like, okay, this is precedent. Um, so – and they didn't really have much feedback for us other than, you know, 9157 – uh, the the old rules were like you can fly in Class B any any airspace as long as you coordinate with the uh, controlling authorities, which usually was the towers. So and we for, just, and if uh, I can object for a second, you know we yeah. weren't we weren't cagey about it. I mean we gave a full product oh. description and we were Pictures. talking over 50 yeah. pounds uh, RC aircraft fixed wing and also lighter than air systems up over 100 pounds uh, flying in open air. Hey, tell us what to do, guys. Go ahead, Tony. It was all in writing too. We had official, um, you know, official documents from the FAA, an official ruling. It wasn't like, hey, you know, we got official stuff. That last little folder everywhere we went that showed, yes, this is legal. And um, when we worked out the deals with the regional areas, the regional areas, which was, I believe, Texas, Oklahoma, um, most of the South was the regional area, and uh, I got to talk to the heads of that area. And then we came up with the procedure. How are we going to contact the tower? All these procedures we came up with, and we got that at an official blessing and an official, you know, I could walk to a tower with this document, and they couldn't turn me away. They had to work right. with us. And uh, we never had an issue. I mean, we flew uh, downtown Dallas, and that's the approach corridor for Love Field, one of the biggest, uh, busiest airports in the nation. So um, we did it very successfully. Never had any issues. Airships are just inherently safe. We did it, not it was all billboards. Yeah, and not to mention we flew out of the Dallas Municipal Airport. I mean, we had a hangar there, and we were conducting yeah. regular flight operations almost daily uh, w- within the pattern, uh, talking directly with the tower. Uh, we're squawking the transponder. I mean, we were just another aircraft as far as they were concerned, and we were all doing it with the FAA's knowledge and blessing at the time. And we were flying, um, you know, little systems, but we were flying large systems. We're talking 600-pound-plus lighter-than-air, 75-foot uh, aircraft flying FLIR cameras and multispectral cameras and Cineplex cameras, uh, all literally within the pattern. And, uh, yeah. and, you know, a lot and of our work- demo videos show other aircraft in the same airspace and helicopters flying bias and waving, <clears throat> things like that. And it wasn't easy. We we had to learn, you know, AGL, MSL, and that's the things that just blow my mind now, how everybody thinks they're going to integrate. They don't even know how to talk to the FAA. And, uh, you know, we got our scoldings, and we learned through uh, uh, hours and hours of operation because it wasn't like you're speaking into the pattern. You had to you had to regulate everything on the outside and learn how to give uh, – stay within your boundary, learn how to give where you're at. You know, you had to learn how to talk properly. It took a while. It wasn't, uh, you know, plug and play easy. Right. Well, but you know, one of the we again ran past a lot of stuff, and I want to go back. And you know, you were talking about these aircraft, and and that was one of the things. I mean, you guys sent them pictures. I remember there was an aircraft that had a fourteen foot wingspan. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they knew exactly what they were dealing with. You guys did the full disclosure. Yes. And, yeah, it uh, wasn't just a ship. It was a, a huge fixed wing. It was anything we could imagine that we wanted to fly. Right. Try to get him to say no, basically. Try to find out where that line was, and it never it never uh, came to be. 
Right. And at the time, I remember that in the documentation, they said, we don't um, regulate, uh, you know, unpiloted or remotely piloted vehicles. And uh, here's the procedure and have a nice day. So during the arc, because I did have you guys as uh, SMEs, we did try and get a uh, LTA category five, um, which they tried to say it was just too late. They couldn't do it. But I, I didn't believe that. I think that. Really, people, a lot of people don't understand that uh, lighter-than-air vehicles are uh, right-of-way vehicles. They, you have to give the right-of-way to an airship. So the seen-avoid at the time, which is now detected-avoid, thing went right out of the window. And uh, it really kind of, I, I think, kind of embarrassed the people on the ARC-1 that they weren't aware that the air traffic organization had given you guys clear and, and uh, defined let's say, procedures to operate in class Bravo airspace within the mode C veil. Some people were, you know, oh, my, whoa, wow, you know, I can't believe this is going on. So one hand didn't know what the other hand was doing, but all of this was going on, and then we tried to give them recommendations, and uh, they said it was too late, even though you guys came to Quantico and um, did the demo, which was a and pretty going back interesting for a demo. Second, Patrick, I recall specifically on that arc, just the uh, the sheer shock of wait these guys have been flying with permission no and I mean they were making yeah. us prove it and it was really easy to do but secondly to your other point with lighter than air you know in terms of having uh, let regulators thinking or the the rules committee thinking like manned aircraft and regulating in kind we're talking right-of-way vehicles and we bring that up to them and it's just a bunch of silence and looking around the room going, uh, wait, it blew the detect and avoid sensitive void thing right out of the water because the, the, the onus is on the, the man pilot to give right away to the blimp. And I think that was a thing that really scared them that, and at the time, uh, most of the uh, people on the arc were from DOD vendors and the lighter-than-air solution was something that directly competed uh, with some of the other million-dollar systems, and people didn't like that either. So I think and that's the reason you guys And wasn't even being considered. Well, exactly. Uh, but, you know, uh, they, they didn't like it. There was a lot of embarrassment there, and uh, it's too bad. It's funny, you know, we've, we've come this far um, – and we're still, everybody's like trying to integrate quadcopters into the NAS. It's kind of an interesting, uh, interesting well, you know, time. There, there's, there, there, there's an interesting parallel to draw here because uh, you guys started, like you said, in the early aughts to get this going, this whole, well, we don't regulate that and you can do this sort of thing. You know, you, you pull it up into 2007 when we got the great clarification it was much the same thing, you know, we don't regulate this and we don't regulate that. And the right hand not knowing what the left was doing was rampant, you know, even to that point, because you could call any FISDO in the United States or any tower and ask them, they'd say, oh, yeah, go fly. We don't care. Get out of our okay. air. Yeah. So well, that, even think... with you groundbreaking like you did, they were still hiding their heads in the sand. And keeping in mind, this was all post-9-11 <laughs> to boot. 
know. Yeah, well, that was the uh, that was the other thing that they tried to uh, say too. Well, you know, it's a different world then, and because you know we didn't have this and that, and then there was nine eleven. It's like, well, no, the documents are after nine eleven. What? What? You know. Yep, um, yeah. The the other thing that kind of bugs me about this, and you know, let's so so we're in two. Let's talk two thousand seven, February thirteenth. We're working through this. Everybody, oh hey, what's gonna? Oh, you know, sixty, ninety days, six months, whatever. We're gonna have something for you. <laughs> Flash, yeah. you know, we have to come forward to twenty sixteen. And I'm, you know, and I don't, I, I, you know me, I don't like to beat up on anybody doing a good job, but, uh, you know, at the NASA UAMGC, I told Earl Lawrence in, in, in person that basically what happened with the um, prohibition on the unmanned aircraft thing is you basically, they didn't just give it away or, you know, free sign or whatever. It was like you left the keys in the ignition with the car running with drones. And to be surprised now that uh, where we are and, you know, companies like uh, like your company or whatever had to basically just sit on the sideline for 10 years, you know? Yeah, well, yeah we, well, had to sit, we had to sit and watch after we were the first to put a live broadcast on, on a major sports network on the very first go-around. I mean, we literally provided aerial coverage for multiple events we go from that to being told that, you know, it's unprecedented and impossible to do and then have to watch and wait for, you know, so many years. Well, and there's a story that just came out not too long ago, and they were like tooting their horn. Oh, we did an HD broadcast from uh, uh, NASCAR with a quad on a tether. So it's like that was done 10 years ago, you know, but people well, don't – the funny thing um, is – we got the moniker for the first HD because we had the prototype radio for the first HD aerial broadcast ever. So we do hold that moniker for real, and that was a real heavy radio, but we were the first ones to actually do it. So Well, and, and but I, I, I think, uh, you know, it goes back to what I'm saying, where a lot of people believe this is a, a new thing. Even testimony to the transportation uh, committee hearing in the, in the House the other day you had uh, somebody from uh, Canadian from Precision Hawk talking about how the USA is leading the way now with the 107. You know, it's like leading the way with the 107. I, I don't think so. I think we were leading the way uh, back in the 2000s and it was artificially, uh, let's say, you know, the fire was put out. And, uh, you know, now we've taken a backseat and there's, there's, you know, no denying that there's a monopoly. Chinese monopoly of the uh, small UAS. Everyone believes every UAS is a quadcopter. And uh, we found ourselves in a real pickle. And it, it's really kind of, uh, to me, it, it really, it's, it's galling. The other thing that we had going is, so the, you know, and, and people in the, on this call were trying to do it legally uh, and yeah. trying to do it within the rules and to watch people just scuff law and go and make money and do things. And uh, the FAA did no enforcement Head in the sand. Oh, we need data. Well, are you collecting data? No. What kind of data do you want? We don't know. Well, what, yeah, you know, and, and, we couldn't, and we couldn't hide. I mean, we were 60, 75-foot airships, and we were begging on them, TV. Hard to hide on national TV. Exactly. 2007 was a real shocker to us because we didn't even believe it happened. We were like, this this is unprecedented. You, you've outlawed a form of business with no precedent. You just said no, and we're like, oh, no, this isn't real, and we kept 
we kept chugging on and we kept going on and we're like, no, and we were getting feedback from investors and we still did our demo and we, we did a demo. And we operated after the for fact. two more years. Two more years right. of developing, thinking that we were going to, any day now it's going to turn around. And we did the uh, demo. That was kind of a, the FAA demo over in Quantico was the last hurrah, you know. We took a 60 down there, and uh, I think we blew them away. I mean, uh, all this, you know, when they saw the Scan Eagle take off, and as soon as it got a couple miles away, it completely disappeared. Everybody's murmuring, uh-oh, 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 all the fears. And you run down the line. I mean, you had a hand-launched toy from a um, – Aero environment there, and like when they got to the end of the line, here's this 60 foot blend. The jaws dropped, and we flew, and camera, and all that stuff, and they loved it. And uh, you know, okay, and we had nobody had a clue it was going to take this long. No, no, and uh, you know, a lot of the people that uh, lost, you know, a lot of stuff that had invested in this business, and that was just arbitrary and with no data. We're really crying shame. But uh, so then, you know, let's fast forward. So we had all well, that if under I can interject for a second, because you had brought up uh, 107, and the and the burner about that is, if you think about it, this is the Federal Aviation Administration with years and years and you know, spanning covering aircraft and understanding aircraft, defining aircraft, making regulation according to aircraft platforms and types, and then all of a sudden when you get to drones. All that goes out the window, and it's like you get this completely different set of logic and knowledge centers coming in who are trying to regulate UAS, and and they have this myopic scope of a quadcopter, and that is a UAS, and there can no there can be no other platform that you might even consider. And it's like you're the FAA, you know, there's different times of flying apparatus and devices, and so. To arbitrarily regulate according to a weight of 55 under 55 pounds or under this that or the other, it's like it's it's you you have to regulate to the aircraft you're regulating using the very precedents you have set with other types of aircraft. So that's kind of always a bugaboo I've had with 107, where people throw their hands up and hurrah and say yes, we finally have something, and I'm like, well, I guess. We have something. It's like if we're we're uh, we've all of a sudden forgot our history and we forgot what what innovations mankind has made in flight, and now all of a sudden we're talking about this one device, this one quadcopter that you know you almost throw out aerodynamic principles entirely, even when you're dealing with them, which is why you get stuck on weight and and things like that. So I, well, well, I apologize. Go ahead, Gene. I, I think. I think one of the things that, that we need to keep in perspective here, though, is when you listen to all the proposed stuff that they were talking about bringing to bear from the man side, that was why everybody threw up their hands and went hooray over 107, because it was a gift, because we were suddenly looking at things like having to have an A&P mechanic work on your quad doctor, you know, having to have mean time between failures done, have everything PMA, yellow certi- certified, yellow tickets on them, uh, you know, the whole nine yards. And we were, we were looking, I even, I, I'm sure you did too, but you had to carry a second class flight medical to even fly a drone. And a that, when you start adding that all in, it was going to be, I mean, it was going to be a killer for the industry for a long time. And when they came out with 107, it was such a sigh of relief. I mean, that's where that came from, I think. 
Yeah, um, I, and you know, I don't think that. Let's say in the whole that 107 was that bad, but I will say that it's the problems that we're having now are a de- direct uh, result of what we have got then, and I think that the arbitrariness of it shows through. Um, I will say that. I do think it's great for be for visual line of sight operations. It's all good. I'm kind of a proponent. I mean, you know, there's a thing going on now where you can make comments. People want to fly over people. People want to fly beyond visual line of sight. Um, you know, my only comments are there's no practical part uh, of the test for 107, and there's no aircraft certification for people that want to fly. They're basically – you know, I keep calling it the Chinese toy company, and people go, it's so much more than a toy. Well, really? Because it's imported, you know, it's uh, when it comes into the country, it's classified as a toy. So, I don't know. There's, there, It's a really mixed up thing, but I don't believe that everything can be done on a quadcopter. And there are other vehicles and other applications that require different types of systems, and uh, those systems be over 55 pounds. But the 55-pound thing was totally arbitrary. Um, you know, we remember, we were going to have bins and boxes, and the first bin was two kilos. And I was like, two kilos? You know, wait, wait, are we switching to the metric system? Well, you know, two kilos is what the uh, AeroVironment Raven weighed. And the 55 pounds, they said, was from the hobby thing. Um, yeah, established in, in the 80s just for an insurance write-off. Nothing to do yeah. with anything practical, no science, nope. nothing. Well, and the Scan Eagle uh, fit in that bracket. And, and that's another thing people don't realize. You know, when we were on the ARC, they had us, you know, you were sworn to secrecy. There was no, you know, and I, I was like, well, that's, you know, a bunch of crap because this is, we're going to make, you know, we're giving out recommendations for rules. But as soon as that... Um, that the scan eagle fit into the, the 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 top category or under the 55 pounds all up weight you know not even a week later Boeing up oh, we're we're buying in situ we're all in so you know there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes but uh you know people trying to do things legally without lobbyists uh you know it didn't happen and we we should do another show on that, that. Played out. You see how that played out, though, how many scan eagles are flying around now, you know, in, in commercial airspace. They're in the middle of the Arctic flying, you know. It, it didn't work out because, you know, they, they, they couldn't, you know, it disappeared. All these issues didn't go away. Just well, they didn't, they didn't go away, and I think they kind of took their foot off the pedal. You know, remember now in 2011 when they started up the new UAS ARC, which uh, I tried to get on. They started it up in secrecy and then went on and on. Oh, we're not going to talk about commercial drones. Oh, we're not going to talk about, you know, small drones. We're not going to be talking about any of that stuff. And then they kind of went star chamber. And, uh, you know, I think they just, I don't know if they lost their way or whatever, but anyway, now you have all of these uh, VC funded Silicon Valley at all startups uh, that I think are really making a mess of the whole thing. You know, the waiver process, if you want to be over people waiver, you got to have lobbyists. If you want to be on visual line of sight, which is really a evil, uh, extended visual line of sight uh, waiver with a VO, you, you basically have to have lobbyists. Oh, we got 100,000 operators, you know, and 24 people have waivers or whatever to fly over people. But that's not an industry. That's a that, in my estimation, is a fuster collect. But I don't, you know, I don't. That's another podcast. We're getting off of the the beaten path here. So, 
you know, fast forward to that, if you wanted to operate legally, the only place you could really fly was in, uh, you know, military airspace. Um, or, you know, there were some other avenues that, that other people took. But uh, so, you know, let's talk about the government work. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so, um, work. so, so we, uh, so that's the only way you can actually operate is within government. So, um, so you know, after we, uh, after we do our work with lighter than air, and we do all our work with airships, and uh, and we have to come grinding to a halt, um, you know, coincidentally, and happily, uh, you know, the the Navy was looking to uh, to start deploying aerostats, uh, tethered balloons. Uh, all along the all out in war zones and and wherever, and uh, and so they uh, they tapped us pretty early since we were uh, you know leaders in aerostat. Uh, if that gives you an idea of how the cloud of government goes, not to poo poo it. I mean, it worked to our advantage in, in that particular instance. But uh, you know, unmanned airships and aerostats. Uh, I'd say aerostats in terms of technical. Um, Difficulty and deployment are, are a little easier, so we were able to slide into that. If Tony wants to talk a little bit about uh, about our transition into the government sector, yeah, it was uh, you know we got contacted to uh, they they wanted to know anybody that knew anything about LTA. We said, yeah, we know. And then uh, next thing I know, I'm on a me and Jay on our. I said, hey, can I bring my guys along? And, and they said, yeah, yeah, bring them along. And next thing you know, we're out in the Yuma stand. Uh, looking at this uh, this 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 uh, this aerostat about the same size as the ship that we flew, similar everything was pretty similar. And they said, "Hey, you got uh, you need we we didn't even need to develop training for this thing. There's no manual. We got to write the manual. We got our training guide. And uh, by the way, you're gonna have students in uh, two weeks. <clears throat> so it was like the light your hair on fire program. And um, uh, over time, we brought in a, a good core group of guys. We brought I brought Patrick in and. Uh, he was a, turned out to be a great instructor, and uh, you know we, we we pretty much you know uh, got this program up and running. I think in the end I, I trained a couple hundred deployers. Jason stayed with the program after I left for for a few for for years, and That's it entirely. developed into a really good thing. I mean it was uh, I mean the aero, the, the aerostats are very. I didn't even you know we didn't even think about this tech, and it was going to fobs. It was saving lives, and we took it very serious and our knowledge base went through the roof because now we got access to all the big boys. We got to go to TCOM. We got to go to Aerostar. We got to go to all these major players um, in LTA. And another little offset of that was when we, when we did lose our investors, when we, we had to fold up shop because we couldn't fly commercially anymore. We we did, I did make the rounds to all the LTA companies wanted to see us. So I went to, uh, um, Worldwide Aeros, uh, Blackwater at the time, anybody that had pretty much an airship program, and uh, got a lot of respect, got a lot of love, and uh, nothing came out of it because no one was doing anything. But the the, the spinoff of that was is our knowledge base just went through the roof on uh, LTA more than we could ever hope for. So it was a good well, experience. Um, go ahead. Yeah, no, I just, uh, I mean, I think, uh, you know, the other thing with uh, the PIGS program that we were all on is uh, the the thing that kind of amazed me was, like you said, you got there, that wasn't even, uh, the equipment that we saw wasn't even the equipment they were going to use, stood up a program, trained the people, and they were off uh, to Afghanistan with their equipment. We were able to do that in, I mean, what what was that? It was like 
less than two months or something? Yes, and yeah, I can okay. probably say every system we deployed under under PGS and Yuma that was under uh, our direct training program, we never had a loss because of lack of training. Uh, as soon as TCOM took over their systems, they had several teams that went over there, blew up a bag, lost. I mean, the, the operations went to went to hell because we weren't in charge of the training. I went out to TCOM and we hey, hey, did it. TCOM is a great organization. It's a yeah, great organization. So we, anyway, we, we, we took TCOM. over the training for that, and then that, then you know, we we safety was number one. Um, you know, because we didn't want to get anybody hurt. We took it extremely serious. Schools were flying. And like I said, the knowledge base went through the roof on ops and uh, training. And, you know, it was a very good thing that happened to us. Well, and to give you, and to give you an idea on that as a follow-up. So, yes, we're, we, we're, dropped, uh, we're airdropped into Yuma. And uh, we look at the system, and it's, uh, it's the R&D system. And they say teams are going to be showing up. You have to stand up a training program. Uh, and you will see the system about when your students are halfway through training. Um, that, that was the, the start of it. But, um, you know, it was very fortuitous that we were able to, to slide in there, not just for our sake, but for the program's sake, because keep in mind, we've been operating systems in the commercial space since 2000. And uh, so everything that we did was on the assumption, especially because we were a self-funded company. We never had, we didn't have investments early on, and most of our innovations, our major innovations and design iterations, were done prior to funding. Um, so everything that we had done was on the assumption of we do it for as little money as possible, we have minimal crew as possible, and everything is modulable. So if we have a failure in something, we can quickly swap it in the field because our lifeblood was keeping the system in the air and being able to do the job. And it's not like we had big, deep pockets to make it up. So when we approached this trouble set with the Navy, you know, what are these guys doing? Well, they're going to a war zone. They're being deployed onto a FOB that's the size of a Walmart parking lot. And they're being asked to set up a system from scratch and deploy that system with very little support. And that played right into our general philosophy. So when we, went, when we hit that training program, uh, everything that we did was, was based, on, based on that mentality of, you know, survivability, maximum survivability, uh, crew resource management, uh, collaboration, and uh, trying to keep, make sure everybody had a, a good, strong general concept of how critical components worked with a few people with expertise. So, and like I said, it was a it was an amazing program that uh, had immediate success upon theater and, and upon hitting theater. And the, and some of the greatest feedback we got back was, you know, when these systems show up to a trouble area in a fob, uh, basically all that you end up getting creating this big vacuum donut hole of of no trouble uh, wherever that system was because it was that good at. Uh, at being a persistent surveillance platform and the acronym being persistent ground surveillance systems uh, was apt. And uh, it's, it's something that I'm very glad. I mean, I, I hate that the FAA shut, uh, shut us down, but I, I have to say that was one of the, I'm very happy to have been a part of that program. And I was, I was there from the beginning and I was one of the last to leave uh, when they finally pulled all the systems down and brought them back uh, CONUS stateside. Well, and I yeah, ran the training all the way through. And the uh, and the, there's still systems that are still giving, you know. Um, 
I, it was uh, I, I was uh, proud to be on that. I liked it. I will I will say well you know when we uh, kicked that deal off there were a lot of uh, late nights in the desert. <laughs> yep. And uh, you know you joined Yumistan I think right? Yes, Yumistan. And remember that I mean we were uh, out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, operating, uh, people working seven days a week, 15, 16 hours a day. It was crazy. But, uh, you know, really when you look back on that and what we accomplished, uh, I think it was uh, really something special, especially that those guys got deployed that quick. But then even further on from there, um, you know, now uh, let's, we're going to run long on this deal and that's okay because it's pretty interesting. But uh, let's, let's talk about, um, you know, the, the, the projects that you guys are working on now? What, what, what do you got in the hopper? Or can you tell us? Well, some stuff it's, it's tough to talk about, but um, so having embedded ourselves in government, you know, I'm, I've been able to work on a lot of things, uh, a lot of things focusing on engineering support, a lot of them having to do with uh, UAS support, LTA platforms, and being able to do a lot of the sustainment 